Chapter 5. It Can't Be Done One of the surprising facts about industry is the tenacity with which people cling to methods which were used long before power and machinery entered the world. The only tradition we need bother about in industry is the tradition of good work. All else that is called tradition had better be classed as experiment. In scrapping old ideas, one of the first that needs scrapping is the notion that because manpower is cheap, developed power need not be used. Labor is not a commodity. The point has already been made that one's own workers ought to be one's own best customers, and until that is fully realized, it is quite impossible to make even a beginning on the application of the wage motive. It is not to be assumed that men are worth only what they will work for, and that the manufacturer should adapt his wages and prices to what the traffic will bear, that is, pay his men the least that they can be had for, and charge his customers all that they will stand for. A business ought not to drift. It ought to march ahead under leadership. It seems hard for some minds to grasp this. The easy course is to follow the crowd, to accept conditions as they are, and if one makes a good haul, to take it and plume one's self on being smart. But that is not the way of service. It is not the way of sound business. It is not even the way to make money. Of course, a man may, following this old line, fall into a bit of luck and make a million or two, just as a gambler sometimes wins heavily. In real business, there is no gambling. Real business creates its own customers. Our own attitude is that we are charged with discovering the best way of doing everything, and that we must regard every process employed in manufacturing as purely experimental. If we reach a stage in production which seems remarkable as compared with what has gone before, then that is just a stage of production and nothing more. It is not and cannot be more than that. We know from the changes that have already been brought about that far greater changes are to come, and that therefore we are not performing a single operation as well as it ought to be performed. We do not make changes for the sake of making them, but we never fail to make a change once it is demonstrated that the new way is better than the old way. We hold it our duty to permit nothing to stand in the way of progress, in the way of giving better service with all that follows in wages and prices. It is not easy to get away from tradition. That is why all our new operations are always directed by men who have had no previous knowledge of the subject, and therefore have not had a chance to get on really familiar terms with the impossible. We call in technical experts to aid whenever their aid seems necessary, but no operation is ever directed by a technician, for always he knows far too many things that can't be done. Our invariable reply to it can't be done is, go do it. Take this matter of making plate glass. In the last chapter were described the methods in use at our glassmere factory. Essentially, those methods do not differ from the methods used centuries ago. Glassmaking is very old. It has tradition, and those traditions center around the clay pot in which the mixture is melted into glass. That pot, as has been said, must be made by hand. The clay is tamped and kneaded by the bare feet of men, and then the pot is built up by hand. Of course, machinery has come in to carry these pots to and from the furnace. There are conveyors to do the handling, 
and machine grinding and polishing has replaced the old handwork, but the operation itself has not been fundamentally changed. Machinery has been brought in to do, insofar as possible, what was formerly done by hand. But the whole operation had never been thoroughly studied to discover what was really fundamental. The easy course is always to substitute machine effort for a hand effort, and the full value of power is not then realized. The hard course is to start at the beginning and evolve a method which, instead of substituting the machine for the hand, takes for granted that a method can be discovered by which the entirety may be done by machinery and the man only considered as an attendant upon the machine. This is the machine concept of industry as opposed to the hand concept. It seemed to us that we ought to be able to manufacture plate glass continuously in a big ribbon and with no handwork at all. The glass experts of the world said all this had been tried and that it could not be done. We gave the task of doing it to men who had never been in a glass plant. They started experimenting at Highland Park. They ran up against every trouble that had been predicted and a number that had not been, but eventually they achieved their result. The little plant at Highland Park is producing two and a half million square feet a year, and the big plant at River Rouge, which we built as soon as we knew that we could make first-class plate glass, is producing 12 million square feet a year. This big plant occupies about one-half the space of the Glassmere plant, although it has nearly double its production, and also it employs only about one-third as many men as Glassmere. Although we have not been able to expand our plant sufficiently to care for our needs, we are already saving about $3 million a year on the glass that we do make as compared with what we have to pay outside. Here is the new process. The batch is melted in huge furnaces, each with a capacity of 408 tons of molten glass. The temperature maintained is a melting heat of 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit and a refining heat of 2,300 degrees. The furnaces are charged every 15 minutes with sand, soda ash, and other chemicals. The glass flows out in a continuous stream onto a slowly revolving iron drum and passes under a roller which gives the right thickness and rolls it into a sheet. From the drum it enters the lair, moving at the rate of 50 inches a minute. The lair is 442 feet long and anneals the glass under gradually diminishing heat. The construction of the lair was one of the hardest problems and the one on which all others had fallen down. We could not have constructed it without our experience in conveyors and accurate machine making. It is no small accomplishment to support a moving sheet of glass 442 feet long while it cools from a temperature of 1400 degrees Fahrenheit at the roller to a point where it is cold enough to handle. The movement of the conveyor has to be absolutely even and the rollers on which the glass moves so perfectly lined and adjusted that at no point in the 442-foot journey will the glass be subjected to the slightest distortion. The diminishing temperature problem is solved by thermostatically controlled gas flames at varying intervals. At the end of the layer, the glass is cut into 113-inch lengths, each sheet being the exact size required for six complete windshields, and then is carried by conveyors to the polishing machines. The sheets are mounted in quick-setting stucco to hold them firmly in position, and passed on conveyor tables under a series of grinding and polishing wheels. Sand mixed with water 
flows through a hole in the center of the cast-iron grinding disc and works its way out to the edge. Finer and finer sand is used as the glass moves on its way, each grinder taking a cut. Eight grades of sand and six grades of garnet are used in the grinding and smoothing. The plate is then washed. The glass then goes to the polishing discs, which are felt-covered and which use a mixture of iron rouge and water. At the end of the line, the glass is turned over and proceeds back on another grinding and polishing line, from which it leaves as completely finished and polished plate glass that has not been touched by human hand. There is no handling of the sand, nor is there any handling of the various grades of polishing sand. The silica sand and other materials used in composing batches of glass are likewise untouched by hand. From a vacuum machine, a heavy rubber hose goes into the car of material. The material is drawn up through the hose and falls into a hopper. A conveyor of the elevator type carries it aloft and dumps it upon a belt conveyor equipped so as to permit the discharging of the material into the storage bin where it belongs. The grinding sand has to be graded while being used. This is done in distribution by a process known technically as levigation. As the sand arrives at the plant, it is received and stored in large tanks beside the railroad tracks. Then, as it is called into use, it is washed by a stream of water into a well. From here, a pump forces it through pipelines that carry it across the plant to the first supply tanks above the furnaces and near to the grinding and polishing lines. From the first supply tanks, the sand flows through inclined pipes to the first grinders in the line. As the rough grinding goes on, the used sand is edged off into gutters beneath the grinding machines, and a pump forces it from the gutters into the levigation system. Floating now in a comparatively large volume of water, the sand begins to grade itself. The larger, heavier grains sink to the bottom of the second tank. The others float at depths that vary according to their size. The overflow from the second tank takes these smaller and lighter grains into the third tank in the supply line, where another settling takes place. The overflow from the third tank feeds in turn the fourth tank, and the same process continued until the eighth and last tank holds the finest sand. Sand supplied to the grinders by all tanks, beyond the second, is pumped from the gutters back to the second tank, from which it is again distributed in the same fashion as before. From the first to the last, the overflow feed and gravity serve each successive tank with sand suited to the grinders it supplies. Garnet used in the last grinders is graded by this same method. The process sounds simple enough, and it is. Every well-thought-out process is simple. And with the simplicity and the absence of hand labor has come a greater safety. Glassmaking used to be considered a dangerous occupation. It is no longer so with us. For two years past, we have lost less than one hour per man due to accident, and that we shall cut down. Spinning and weaving have come down to us through the ages, and they have gathered about them traditions which have become almost sacred rules of conduct. The textile industry was one of the first to make use of power, but also it was one of the first to use the labor of children. Many textile manufacturers thoroughly believe that low-cost production is impossible without low-priced labor. The technical achievements of the industry have been remarkable, 
but whether it has been possible for anyone to approach the industry with an absolutely open mind, free from tradition, is another matter. We use more than 100,000 yards of cotton cloth and more than 25,000 yards of woolen cloth during every day of production. And even a very tiny saving per yard would mean a good deal to us in the course of a year. That is why, several years ago, we started our textile experiments, not with any thought of making over the textile industry, for we are manufacturers of motors, but with the thought of finding some way to avoid the fluctuations of the cotton market and to get our own requirements at a lower price. At first, we took for granted that we had to have cotton cloth. We had never used anything but cotton cloth as a foundation material for tops and for artificial leather. We put in a unit of cotton machinery and began to experiment. But not being bound by tradition, we had not gone far with these experiments before we began to ask ourselves, is cotton the best material we can use here? And we discovered that we had been using cotton cloth not because it was the best cloth, but because it was the easiest to get. A linen cloth would undoubtedly be stronger because the strength of cloth depends upon the length of the fiber, and the flax fiber is one of the longest and strongest known. Cotton had to be grown thousands of miles from Detroit. We should have to pay transportation on the raw cotton if we decided to go into cotton textiles, and we should also have to pay transportation on this cotton converted into its motor car use very often back again to where it had been grown. Flax can be grown in Michigan and Wisconsin, and we could have a supply at hand practically ready for use. But linen-making had even more traditions than cotton and no one had been able to do much in linen-making in this country because of the vast amount of hand labor considered essential. Cotton goods were a luxury, and growing cotton was unimportant until Eli Whitney invented his gin, for until then, as everyone knows, the seeds had to be picked out of cotton by hand, which was not only a long and tiresome, but an exceedingly wasteful and expensive process. The flax fiber has always been recovered by hand in Ireland, in Belgium, and in Russia, in fact, everywhere that flax is used. The methods are not much different from those used in the Egypt of the pharaohs. That is why linen is expensive, and that is why so little flax is grown in the United States. We, fortunately, have not a sufficient supply of low-paid hand labor to make any crop which requires manual handling profitable. We began to experiment at Dearborn. And these experiments have demonstrated that flax can be mechanically handled. The work has passed the experimental stage. It has proved its commercial feasibility. To begin at the beginning, we put about 600 acres into flax. We plowed and prepared the ground by machinery. We sowed by machinery. We harvested by machinery. We dried and threshed by machinery. And finally took out the fiber by machinery. That has never successfully been accomplished before. Flax has always required a lot of cheap hand labor. We cannot use anything in our business which requires hand labor. Flax grows very well in Michigan and also in Wisconsin, although in Wisconsin the attention has been given to growing a flax not for the fiber but for the seed, which is crushed into linseed oil. Flax growing for fiber has not gone far in this country because almost the only market for flax is abroad, where cheap hand labor is available. Flax is a peasant crop, and before the war, the big producer was Russia. It had an abundance of people accustomed to living on nothing a year. 
Our own country has not been enough interested in flax growing to find out with exactness where it will grow. It seems to require a moist climate, but once the flax industry is established here, undoubtedly we shall be able to develop varieties so that nearly every section of the country will have a species which it can profitably raise. The valuable fiber of the plant is on the outside of the stalk surrounding the woody core, and it has always been considered out of the question to mow flax as one would mow wheat, for it is essential to keep the stalks parallel, else the subsequent hand operations will be hampered. Also, cutting flax was supposed to leave too much valuable stalk attached to the root in the ground. Therefore, the foreign practice is to pull by hand, and afterward, while the crop is on the ground, to comb out the seeds. A great deal of valuable seed is lost. Thus, right at the beginning, under the old methods, we have two expensive and wasteful hand operations, the pulling and what is called the rippling. We experimented with a rather intricate pulling machine, but found it was not worthwhile, and that we could do better cutting very close to the ground. In our mechanical process, it is not necessary to keep the stalks parallel after they are cut, and it is cheaper to waste a few seeds than to use hand labor. Therefore, we harvested it by machinery, leaving the seeds on the stalks. The next operation, in the old style, is what is called retting, that is, rotting. The usual method is to tie the stalks into sheaves and put them under water for some weeks with weights on top to keep them from drifting away. When the stalks have sufficiently rotted, the sheaves are taken out and dried in the sun. This is all hand work, and extremely unpleasant, dirty work, because the rotting flax gives out an almost unbearable odor. It is a matter of great judgment to discover exactly the right kind of water for retting, and also to know when to stop the process. The next operation, under the old methods, is the most tedious, wasteful, and expensive of all. This is known as scotching, by which the fiber is separated from the woody core. Under the method we have developed, all these expensive hand operations are done away with. After cutting, we leave the stalks on the ground for some weeks. Then we gather them up and bale them, just as though they were hay. Instead of drying the retted flax in the sun, we pass it through an oven on a conveyor, and this conveyor delivers the conditioned flax to what we call a ginning machine, and which is the very heart of our process, because it entirely replaces the old hand process of stripping the fiber. The gin has six sections, running at various speeds, with fluted rolls and combing rolls. There is no use going into the technical details. The upshot of it is that this machine mechanically takes out all of the seeds and stalks and leaves us a fiber which is, in part, what is called line flax, and in part, tow. There is a saving, both in labor and in recovery. These gins do not care how the stalks feed into them so it is no longer necessary to bother about keeping the stalks parallel. It is calculated that one machine working eight hours and tended by two men will scotch as much flax as ten men working by hand through a twelve-hour day. This flax is now being spun into two grades of linen, one a coarse cloth and the other a fine cloth. This is done on standard equipment which we bought abroad, but our men have already managed to make some improvements on this machinery and others will come as we get more fully into the work. For instance, the usual practice is to spin the flax on spools and then rewind onto bobbins for the filling yarn. We are spinning the flax directly to the filling bobbins. 
Eventually, we shall, by a continuous process, feed the flax in at one end of the line and have a dyed, all-linen backing cloth at the other. This will meet with the artificial leather, so that the whole process will be practically continuous. We regard this work in flax as among the most important experiments which we are carrying on, for not only will it result in a better product than we have as yet been able to turn out, but also it will be another money crop for the farmer. We alone shall require the product of about 50,000 acres annually, and flax fits very nicely into the rotation of crops. Thus, we shall have a cash crop for the farmer and perhaps a new industry for the country. And this is not counting the value of the flax byproducts, the linseed oil or the tow, which makes excellent stuffing for upholstery. Our chemists are experimenting with the shivs or chaff to the end of finding some satisfactory cellulose compounds. These might be used in a variety of ways, as liquids for the coating of the tops or as solids for handles and in connection with electrical equipment. This flax growing, spinning, and weaving can and ought to be decentralized so that it can be complementary to well-conducted farming, that is, grain farming, as distinguished from dairying, stock-raising, or truck farming. The place for the gins, the spindles, and the looms is out in the country where the flax is grown. It could be made a village industry manned by farmers who can apportion their time between farm and factory. We are also feeling our way into the manufacture of woolen cloth for our own requirements on our usual plan of making the process continuous. To start with, we took a young man out of a drafting room and for three months put him at work in a mill with instructions to learn all that he could about weaving, accepting the traditions. We have as yet made only minor changes and improvements in the standard machinery and the output of our experimental plant is negligible as compared with our needs, but we find that it will be possible to effect a saving of nearly 30% on our woolen cloth, which will mean a saving of many million dollars a year. Whenever one can line up machinery for the making of exactly one thing and study everything to the end of making only that thing, then the savings which come about are startling.